Okay, here we go. So finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the path for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This was happening in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is the word of the Lord. So this is how John the gospel writer, and you're going to have to hold three Johns in your mind. There's John, the writer of the gospel, one of his disciples. There's John the baptizer, who's different. And then there's me, John. Uh, But that shouldn't be too hard for you to keep separate from the other two Johns. But John begins his gospel with his prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Moving to John the Baptist as the one who pointed to Jesus but was not the Messiah. And then we jump into a story that is clearly already in motion. Things are already moving. You've got crowds coming, you've got a revival. You've got what always follows a revival, which are the critics, those who come to tear down. Then you have hope. You have people walking away saying, is it true that the Messiah that we've been promised is already walking among us? I mean, he says in here, he's here, he's somewhere. He's walking among you. And to think, Someone in this crowd, someone might be the Messiah, means what a privilege to be born in a generation that bore witness to the Messiah coming. So they are listening to the teaching. So if you can imagine, John the Baptist is up in the north on the other side of the Jordan River, baptizing, hosting a revival. He's some distance from Jerusalem, which is probably by design to be outside of the established authority and to be doing God's work there and people coming to him to be baptized, to have something outward in the baptism to reflect something inward that has happened. If you could summarize John's teaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn and see what God is about to do. And it is a movement. People are coming from all over the Jewish diaspora, spread out all over by the Roman Empire, to come together to listen to the teaching of this man named John and to receive a baptism. And as they leave from there, excited, they've been given a new beginning. It's a a sign of, you know, repentance. The thing about repentance is, you know, we, we get hung up on what we turn from, but what we turn towards is beautiful, it's compelling, it's good. What they're what they're in their being baptized with joy, a new start, a new beginning. Any anybody need a new beginning somewhere in their life? Like that's what drew people here. 
there's the promise of a new beginning. And as they walked home, you know, as they walked home and maybe the 20 or 30 people that, that came in their, with them from their village, more pilgrims returning home along the way, and then seeing the 50, group, the 50 of you going home is met with double that going out to hear him. And as they're passing by, he's over there. Where he was over there yesterday. He's still preaching over there in, in uh, Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River. You're almost there. Yes, I actually think the Messiah is about to come. How exciting is this? And there's this energy and this joy and this excitement and this hope being birthed. And then what do those people do? They get home. They tell everybody about it. There's this guy, John the Baptist. He's baptizing. He is speaking with power and authority. We're desperate for hope. We're desperate for new beginning. And this John, he's telling us that the Messiah, the promised one for generations that our people have been waiting for, not only is going to be born, he's already born, he's already here, and any day he's going to emerge. And, we're going to re- and he wants us to recognize him. His purpose is to point the way so that when he emerges, we are ready, willing, and waiting. And so when you think about Jesus doing his ministry, going from village to village, it is likely that every village he went to had somebody that had been baptized by John. And that that hope, that expectation, those ears that were tuned to hear what he had to say were already there. This is a movement happening. And like any movement, those who have the power and and maintain the status quo hear it with suspicion. We've got two groups sent by different religious authorities and leaders, some some Pharisees and, and some of those who were sent by them, and their fundamental question to John the Baptist was, who do you think you are? Why are you baptizing? Who told you you could baptize? Why are you proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor? Are you a rabbi? Who'd you study under? Are you self-appointed, self-anointed? What are you doing out here in the wilderness? Do you recognize that what you're doing is actually dangerous? You know, this isn't some game. I don't know if you're out here to increase your platform or to make a name for yourself, but do you know what happens to messiahs? They get killed and people die with them. Who are you? Who is it that you think that you are? You know, this is true of any grassroots uh, revival movement. There's those in the power. Just in general, change is met with resistance. There's something new happening. This is a threat to me. This overturns the apple cart. Um, and we need to have some suspicion there. Um, he had started something that we would call revival. This is, this is what revival looks like. People flocking, ready to hear hope, ready to believe in, in the promises of God afresh and anew, uh, and, and something new being birthed and, and born uh, among us. Um, he's in the north, probably for a number of reasons. I, I think one is the practicality of not having to deal with harassment every time, that the people who want to hear and preach, they're willing to walk and travel. But as critics, they're like, I don't know, man, there's kind of backwater, backwoods, other side of the Jordan. But read other side of the Jordan, like, uh, you know, the way we talk about train tracks? Like, he's on the other side of the train tracks. He's in that space. Good people like us don't go. They don't eat kosher there. We'll be defiled. We'll be unclean. Besides, what we're doing here in Jerusalem is just too important. Let's send the intern to go out there. And, you know, we'll, we'll buy our own lattes this week. You know, that's, that's, I don't think they had lattes back then, but you get what I'm saying here. Uh, and so there's, there's that reason. Uh, there's less scrutiny there. And the further those in power get from their, their, their kind of the center of their power, the less power that they have. And it's, it's quite a thing 
for them to, to walk in and see, oh my gosh, this is bigger than I thought. There's a lot of social pressure to, you don't say stop, because everybody will look at you like, who invited you? What are you doing here? So he's probably doing that for some practical reasons. The other reason I think he's up there is he, he's deliberately taking on the images of, of Elijah. That's why he's in our teaching series going through Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist. Um, when his clothing is described, it's a cloak exactly like the one Elijah wore. Uh, his, his dress, his diet, him working on the margins. He is in the north where uh, we first met Elijah, where he was hiding in a, in a cave, drinking from a river to the widow, who was just on the other side of the Jordan where John is, where, where he lived with uh, Haman, who came from the other side of the Jordan for healing, that he's in the area where Elijah did his ministry. And if you think about, well, what did Elijah do? What was so significant? It was, he was on the margins of Israel, calling people back to God, confronting the, 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 those in power who were not following God at all, uh, that were actually hunting him, trying to kill him. So he is a voice calling out from the, out, from the margins, calling on behalf of God for people to return to the very heart of God. People are repenting. People are listening. There is much like when God told Elijah, there are thousands who have never bowed the knee to Baal. So it is that there are thousands of Israel who are ready and willing to listen for something new, to hear of a new beginning and the start of a new day. And they come with them, and you can see they've got their boxes. They say, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Or are you the Messiah? And you can see them. I, I generally find when I ask somebody a question, and I follow it with a multiple-choice quiz, I'm not actually curious, and I'm not actually a very good listener. What I'm trying to do is take you and put you into one of my boxes. Oh, you're this. And generally speaking, whenever you speak reductively of somebody, the answer is D, none of the above. And that's how John answers the quiz. I'm none of those things. So they finally say, well then, who are you? And what's worth noting is John knows how to answer that question. And I cannot overstate the importance of knowing the answer to the question, who are you? When I'm asked that question, I say, I'm a pastor. And generally speaking, we confuse who we are with what we do. And generally speaking, that's a problem. John knows the answer to that question. Are you the one are you the Messiah? Are you the one Moses talked about, the prophet who would come after him? Are you Elijah? And he knows deep in his bones the answer to that question. He knows who he is, and he knows exactly who he is not. He knows he's the one who prepares the way for Jesus. He knows he's not Jesus. He knows that my, my job is to prepare the way ahead of him, to walk in front of him, to prepare the way his job is to literally save the whole world. And it is so important not to confuse your job with Jesus' job. Uh, the one who proclaims the way of Christ and the one who is the Christ. He knows that he must become less, that Christ becomes greater. That his whole life's mission is to prepare the way for people to hear, to shape their ears, 
to, to focus their eyes so that when he comes, he can see them. How exactly is John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus to come? What activities? What is he doing? What is he trying to attune the hearts of the people to? How is he changing, shaping their expectations so that when Jesus is in front of them, they don't miss him? Because there's an awful lot of people who missed Jesus when he was literally standing right in front of him. And I have no doubt in the age to come, when I stand behind, in front of the resurrected Jesus Christ, I will look back and say, and boy, were there moments in my life where Christ was right in front of me and I didn't see him and didn't recognize him. Why? My eyes weren't focused. My ears had other things ringing in them. How is it then that we prepare ourselves and how is it that John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord? Well, let's look at the three different scriptures that shape the answer to that question. First is from Isaiah 40. I don't know if you've read Isaiah 40 lately. It is one of the most gorgeous, beautiful pieces of scripture. And, it, and I would suggest if you're going to read it, which I hope you do, go back a couple chapters because it is judgment. It is, it is bad news, bad news, bad news. It is like if you've ever, um, and if anyone here wants to offer something, I'm looking at Ian, I'm looking at Sakari, uh, pieces that have a lot of dissonance to them, and then all of a sudden a melody breaks out. And that's, that's how Isaiah 40 is. It's the melody that there's this dissonance of, of, of bad news coming, and then all of a sudden the melody emerges out of that dissonance, and Isaiah 40 comes. And it, it's, it's a passage that is actually familiar to you because we draw upon it so much at Christmas time because it's about the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah. And he says, who am I? I'm the one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the day of the Lord. Uh, uh, there's a specific reference to him in, in Malachi chapter 4. So this is how the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, ends before Matthew 1, the genealogy connecting the Old and the New Testament, and then Jesus comes along. This is how, these are the last two verses of what we call the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. It's the last line of the Old Testament. Kind of a, um, well, it's what N.T. Wright says. That it's a, it's the, a story in search of an ending. It's a, it's a search of resolution. So, I'm the prophet Elijah, and the image that Malachi gives us of John's role is turning the hearts of parents towards their children and turning the hearts of children towards their parents. Why do you think that's a sign of God's arrival? What is it about healing of generational wounds and traumas that are a sign of God's peace arriving, of the, the sins of the generation before us being reconciled as parents and children and children to parents are reconciled back together. This cycle of inheriting a world, lamenting the generation that came before us, only to create new things for the next generation to lament that were unfinished and incomplete. Is there a more beautiful picture of peace than of families united together, of parents 
welcoming children, loving children with their whole hearts, of, of parents making decisions for the world, thinking of children rather than thinking of themselves, and of, of children receiving the wisdom of a previous generation so they don't have to make the same mistakes. I, I heard somebody describe wisdom as the things you wish you had known but didn't know. And wisdom is, I made these mistakes. Wisdom is what I give you so you don't make those same mistakes. You go out and make your own mistakes. Um, you don't have to make mine over and over again. Um, that's what Jesus brings with him. That's what John does to prepare the way for Jesus to come. A, uni a unity, a healing of generational sins and wounds so that people can see Jesus come to them. Your expectations of what he's doing is shaping our expectations. Have you ever took a sip of something thinking it was one thing and it wasn't? I remember one time thinking I had grabbed water and I'm not going to tell the goldfish story about when you drank thinking it was fresh, clean water, but it, a goldfish had been on it for eight hours and it made you violently sick. I'm not going to tell that story right now, but we can tell that afterwards. I'm going to tell the story of a time when I thought I was reaching in a mug that had water in it and had orange juice in it. And orange juice is delicious. There's no Redlands without the deliciousness of orange juice because that is what our town at one time provided for, uh, for our country. Um, but when you expect water and you taste something different, you spit it out because your expectations don't match your experience. And what John is doing is saying, this is the cup. This is what's in it. This is what you should expect. If you are expecting a Messiah to come who's going to go and defy Rome and you want to make Israel great once more, I didn't want to say make it great again because I didn't want to step on that landmine. But if, you, if you're thinking, here comes a political leader that is going to restore Israel politically, you're going to miss him. If you have a way and a system that really benefits you. The rules work for you and for people like you. You get to be clean by these set of rules. And obviously, God, God is basically like, I all but want to say to you, I wish I had those rules before I met Moses because those are some great rules. If you think that God is on your side and favors you, you're going to miss Jesus. But what is John teaching? What is John doing? He's preaching repentance. He's preaching about, on the one hand, our sins and all the ways we fall short and all the brokenness in the world. And on the other hand, what we're turning towards, a world that is being reconciled with children and parents united together. And if you can hold intention that I'm falling short and this world is broken and we need a new way, then when a Savior comes, you're going, to rec you're going to recognize that Savior in front of it, and right in front of you. What John is doing is attuning us to our need for salvation. And he is saying, well, actually, I'm going to borrow Jesus' words here. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you'll be filled when you meet Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for when you see Jesus and recognize him, you'll be called children of God. He will acknowledge and recognize you are part of God's family by the way that you are missing peace. Do you mourn? Are you in grief? Then blessed are you because you will see Jesus and he will bring to you comfort. Blessed are those who are, are gentle and humble of heart. For you are looking intuitively 
for the Messiah that has come. We are introduced to Jesus in John's gospel the same way Israel was introduced to Jesus in real life through the ministry of John the Baptist 2,000 years ago, preparing the way. And the last scripture he dives into after Isaiah 40, then a Malachi, Malachi, Malachi. I could pronounce it however I want and just say that's how my seminary professor taught me and you all will believe me. Um, so uh, some 2,000 years ago, well, maybe not all of you, but most of you will believe me. Um, there's one more passage that John the Baptist uses, and it's when he sees Jesus. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. I say, behold. And he says, look, look, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. When you've been primed by John the Baptist to recognize our fallenness, how much we fall short, how much we need rescue, how much we need a Savior, and then that Savior comes, that behold the Lamb of God, that image of Passover, that image of being spared and rescued from death itself, and pointing to Jesus, saying he is the one rescuing us. Jesus is preparing the way, or John is preparing the way for Jesus by orienting us to the kind of person he is, what he's come to do, and why, why it matters, why it's important, what's significant about it. He has shaped our expectations on our need for repentance and salvation. He's prepared the way for Jesus by pointing out all the ways the systems fail the people that it's designed to protect and, and push away people it's designed to embrace. And he's saying, turn, turn back to God, return to God, for there is a better way. That's, that repenting is turning away from all that stuff that we might open up a, a, to a new future with new possibilities uh, in Christ. Now you know you need salvation. Now you know through John's ministry that what Jesus has come to do is rescue, to take away our sins himself, uh, all the sins of the world, um, that our hearts, hearts may be turned back to one another. We need a Savior. And thanks be to God, he sent us Jesus Christ, his Son. So are you like those going to hear John the Baptist, ready for something new? Are you ready to acknowledge and recognize, man, the problems in the world sure are the same problems that are inside my own heart, multiplied exponentially. That the need to look for a savior in our political systems is just dividing our nation and our country. That the economic system that we all default to is the one actual thing that runs the world um, only sees our problems worsening and grow. There has to be another way. And then comes Jesus. So if you want that better way, come to the table. If you want a rescue, if you want a savior, come to the table. For he, Christ himself, has prepared the table for us with his own flesh and blood. And as you return to your seats, consider the question, who are you? And might I suggest that your answer look an awful lot like John the Baptist's response. I am merely the one pointing the way to the resurrected Christ who took the sins away from the world. Let's pray as we come to the table. Praise be to you, God, for while we were still sinners, you sent your Son to us. While we were lost, you sent a voice to call out into the darkness to make way for the day of the Lord. Thank you for Jesus. And as we take the real problems we're facing internally, 
And as we think about the real problems we're facing in our city, our state, our country, the world, may we recognize that we all need the same thing. We need for you to come and save us. So thank you for Jesus, and may we be faithful to him as your people. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please come to the